So the reading is from Revelation 13, verses 1 to 10, if you want to follow it in your own Bibles or on your phones or tablets. It'll be also on the screen as well. The dragon stood on the shore of the sea, and I saw a beast of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads, with ten crowns on its horns, and on each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. People worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast. And they also worshipped the beast and asked, who is like the beast? Who can wage war against it? The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies to exercise its authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. It was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And it was given authority over every tribe and people and language and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast All those whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life. The Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. Whoever has ears, let them hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity they will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword they will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. Of all the passages that I've read in this series, that's probably one of the hardest to understand and the hardest to endure. We know that Revelation was written by the Apostle John, exiled by Rome. Many of the early apostles had already been executed. There was severe persecution across um, the Christian church at that time. And he writes, as most of the New Testament is written, from a point of persecution to persecution believers. So for them, it was not abstract at all. This is the way life was for them. And in this vision in chapter 13, he talks about beasts and dragons and also the lamb. And John would have been very aware of the forces of evil in the world. And that's why in a way Revelation is written in that code because he's talking about Rome and he's talking about the emperors and he's talking about those beasts and dragons. But what's behind them as well, the power of evil at work in the world. And John is aware because he knew and he's written down in his uh, writings that Jesus came to destroy all the works of the evil one. But he knows that even in the here and now, that had not happened. Yes, the cross had defeated its power, the power of sin, the power of death, but the enemy, the devil, was still at work in the world. But there was a day coming when Jesus will bring all that suffering and pain to an end. Yet in the midst of that, Christians were being attacked and persecuted. In one of his letters, in 1 John 4 verse 3, he describes the beast in another way. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. And we all know what anti means, don't we? We, we have anti-aging cream. We know what it means. It means nothing at all. No. 
We know what antisocial behavior means. We know what anti-aircraft guns mean. We know what antidepressant means. So when he talks about an antichrist, he is talking of those who oppose Jesus and his church, who oppose the kingdom of God. And that's what he describes in this passage. But also in the Greek language, anti can also mean instead of. So not just opposed to or against, but instead of. There would be those who would draw worship to themselves, which is partly why I wanted to show that video uh, of North Korea, because it is the most religious society ever, because the rulers force them, even though it's atheistic, they say there is no God, but they force their people to worship them. Which is why I believe, personally, it's primed for revival. Because when they see who Jesus really is, they will have been primed for worship. The true living God. And they will see, as they already probably see, but in fear, the emptiness of what they are forced to do. There is a blasphemous bid for worship described in these difficult verses. And the Antichrist can operate through societies and regimes and groups, but often through individuals. And we can think of people in history who have been used for evil works in this world. Even today, the death cults of IS and Boko Haram and Al-Shabaab, you have to look behind them and think, what's going on? What is motivating people just to bring violence and terror to people? with no hope, with no peace. Who is behind all the evil in our world? He is the one who is anti-Christ. And he is still at work in our world, but we know his time is limited. And this symbolic uh, reading that we've read um, shocks us in many ways, that he is allowed still, but... We believe he's allowed because God is working his purposes out to bring as many to him as possible. He could come today and bring it all to an end, but because of his patience and love, he still has more to bring in to his kingdom. I was reading this week that C.S. Lewis, great author of the Narnia books, when he was first started thinking about this issue of evil, it led him, he said, to atheism because he couldn't believe in a God where suffering was allowed in the world. But he said the more he thought about it, the more he began to think there must be a God because if there is evil in the world, how do we compare it? Compare it to good. So there must be God. Apart from God and the morality that flows from him, said C.S. Lewis, there is no standard and therefore no evil either. But we know in our hearts this inescapable truth that evil is real. So therefore, he came to the conclusion that God was real and he was going to defeat all the works of the evil one. Why does God allow evil? Well, he allows freedom, free will. Otherwise, he would just be a dictator, a tyrant, as those we know about. Free will to the heavenly beings, we believe. And we see in the scriptures that Satan himself was an angel in heaven who rebelled against God in the free will that he was given. And so we're going to watch this video and then we're going to worship, come before God in uh, praise and worship afterwards. Let's listen to Ron's teaching now.
The most frightening feature of the book of Revelation is how much power God allows evil. And I want to know, why must God put the devil on such a long leash? So said a pastor recently in the UK. Now, that's a very abstract reaction if you're in a safe place where there's peace, stability, and a certain amount of freedom and prosperity. But if you're living in a nightmare, as many Christians are, whether in a totalitarian regime or a dreadful war or besieged by religious extremists, it's a very real and painful question. And I read the book of Revelation most memorably while making a visit to North Korea many years ago. Unfortunately, it hasn't changed much since. After getting off the plane in Pyongyang, the guide came forward and said to us, Welcome to heaven. You are now in the earthly paradise of our great leader Kim Il-sung. Come and see our paradise. Well, we were whisked off to the Grand Opera. The play was written by Kim Il-sung. It was about Kim Il-sung. And the plot was how Kim Il-sung will save the world, if only the world would realize. Some of the choruses were projected to the side of the stage in English. And one said, Kim Il-sung gives eternal life to the Korean people. Eternal life? From a communist ruler? That's odd. Why all this need for worship? And of course, there's a, a vicious flip side to that. You're not allowed to worship anyone else in North Korea. The whole society is set up to worship the dynasty of Kim Il-sung. It's the most religious society in the world, with over 20 million people trapped into a grim worship vortex from which there's little chance of escape. And I was reading Revelation 13 at the time, and it described North Korea far too accurately for comfort. And of course, the worst of it all is that in the middle of this, God's people are dying. Verse 7, the beast was given power to make war against the saints and to kill them. We think there may be between 200,000 and 400,000 Christians in North Korea, and over 50,000 of them live in labor camps of such atrocious conditions, they're comparable to Auschwitz. Yes, the saints are dying in North Korea, and God doesn't seem to be putting a stop to it. And that's the terrifying thing. Oh, I was angry, angry at Kim. What a nightmare. 20 million people trapped in his personal fantasy. They have no choices. They must obey. They must worship or go to a gulag and die. He has made them less than human. How dare he? So I went back to Revelation 13. And then I read this verse that made me physically sick. Look at the language. Verse 5. The beast was given a month to utter blasphemies and to exercise authority. Verse 7. The beast was given power to make war against the saints and to conquer them. Verse 7 again. He was given authority. Who is giving the beast this power? God is. My God is sovereign. Do I really believe that he has the power to take Kim Il-sung's breath away? Well, yes, of course he has the power. But why doesn't he? 
I'm sure it isn't because Christians haven't asked him to. If you really believe God is absolutely sovereign, you have to face up to this awful fact. It's God that gives the beast all this power. So there you are. The message of Revelation is that God may put evil on a chain, but it's rather a long chain. It's Christians to the lions, and the lions, for the moment, seem to be winning. Where's the hope? I got quite depressed returning from North Korea. If I was God, I would rescue those people. And now we know that about two to three million people died from a terrible and very avoidable famine in the late 90s. And still Kim's descendants spend vast amounts of money on more monuments to deify their absurd personality cult while the people struggle to put a little meat into their rice bowls. Where's the hope? As you keep reading these visions, it comes through. But you have to keep your eye on the Lamb. In the final chapters of Revelation, there is a cast of characters. Beasts, dragons, and the Lamb. If we look too much at the beast, we get depressed. If we fix our eyes on the Lamb, we get strength. For one thing, the Lamb knows completely. I remember a Christian who was jailed and subjected to what he called re-education camp. And he thought he was going mad from all the pressure. And one day, he remembered John's vision of the Lamb. And he said, I knew it wasn't me that was crazy. It was the world that was crazy. And strangely, that restored my spiritual sanity. It sounds odd, but when you see the world around you so well described in its deepest form, it brings a deep and even unconscious relief. In North Korea, I could see the whole society described perfectly by Revelation 13. If God knows all this, then he's still sorting it all out. The passage described, for example, Kim's seeming impregnability. Verse 4, who is like the beast? Who can make war against him? Kim has total power. There's no possibility of revolt. You can't listen to a foreign radio to get the idea that all may not be perfect. The radios just have an on-off switch, no turning dial, which is always preset to the official channel. The passage also describes perfectly his total dominance over every single person. You can't opt out here. Everyone has to pay him homage or die. Verse 16, the beast forced everyone, small and great, rich and poor, to receive a mark on his right hand and on his forehead. Your right hand, what we work with. Your forehead, what we think with. So the beasts have complete control over not just what we do, but what we think. Everyone learns songs of Kim at school. They say grace to him. Their year is organized around his life. In each town, there are vast bronze statues of him to which you bring gifts. People get put into jail for inadvertently standing on a newspaper with his portrait. The Kims are beasts. They have fallen short. 666 is all they get on their report card. So 
I suppose I had gained a vital insight into the book of Revelation. It wasn't just a description of the way the world will end. It was a superb symbolic description of the way the world still is now. This fitted the nightmare of North Korea. And yet, once the situation has been named, it becomes understood and less of a threat. But then secondly, the lamb wins eventually. We're in a section of the book of Revelation, call it the book of the heavens, that runs from chapter 12 to 22. And it starts with these three main figures, a dragon, the beast, and the lamb. And it goes on to tell us that the dragon and beasts have built, it's all falling down. And it ends with a new heavens and a new earth. And in the book, through all the symbols, John is predicting the fall of the Roman Empire. So that you couldn't look at all the grand symbols of this proud empire without seeing its end, its weakness, its impermanence. It's like getting new eyes in North Korea so that those huge golden statues that everyone has to bow down in front of, you look at them differently now. You no longer see a strong eternal figure, but a pompous beast that is soon to die. A lamb will see to it. The world is not at the mercy of beasts or dragons, dictators, tycoons or terrorists. Yes, they can wreak havoc but they cannot bring about the end. Their powers are limited, and God restrains it. You notice throughout the visions that the evil beings only have power to destroy a third of the earth, or for a month they were allowed victory. But it is all happening within an eternal purpose. There is a power center no one can touch, and it all gets folded into a purpose for good. It's not easy to see, though. And how often is that the story of the persecuted church? The beast wins for a time, but then only to realize that they have lost instead. That's where the hope comes from. But then this creates another spiritual crisis of a sort because who wants to follow a God who works like this? And so we find a further comfort. The lamb waits generously. Why does the lamb wait? out of love, so that others may come in. It is grace that stays the judgment hand. Waiting gives us space to pray for the salvation of, say, Kim Jong-un, for example. It gives us another opportunity to do the most eternally significant thing of all, to love and pray for our enemies, and so become more like our God. This is our God, not willing that any should perish, but all have everlasting life. It has been well said that there are two evangelizing dynamics in the Bible. The dynamic of go, that's Matthew 28. We go and make disciples. But there is also the dynamic of wait, that's John 13. No one comes to the Father except the Father draws him. Jesus spent most of his life waiting, the silent years, trusting that God's promises will come to him, so with us. Yes, we go, but we also celebrate waiting. God is bringing the world to us in all its need, and we become his agents of grace because he is granting it all more time. 
he is staying his hand of judgment. And when we realize how generous our God is to wait this long, we feel joy because he waited for us in the same way. So God delays judgment even on the evildoers so that they can get another chance. Not only does he take their work and turn it to good, he waits for them to turn to him. And that puts a whole different complexion on it. God isn't this person who takes some kind of sadistic pleasure in our deaths. As we suffer, he gives us the joy of closeness. It's grace. And as we wait, we realize more and more how merciful he is. And so we lose our fear of God's will. There was a famous Christian saint called Lady Julian, and she had a prayer, ran like this. I ask this without condition, Father. Do what I ask and send me the bill. Anything that it costs will be all right with me. That's quite a prayer. But then she adds, In this love without beginning he made us. In the same love he protects us and never allows us to be hurt in a way which would lessen our joy. God never allows us to be hurt in a way which would lessen our joy. That's why we need a book like Revelation to show us how. Out of the Bible's most terrifying book comes all this gentle comfort. The Lamb brings it. The Lamb knows completely. The Lamb wins eventually. The Lamb waits generously. We're going to worship together. I'm going to ask the band to come back. There's an amazing verse in the passage that we read um, about Jesus dying. I don't know if you picked it up. It's hard when readings full of dragons and beasts and things to pick up that. But if I asked you, when did Jesus die on the cross? You'll say to me, if you're in history, around about A.D. 30. And if you're very into Paul's writings, you'll answer me, well, he died at the right time. While I was still a sinner. But if you read from Revelation 13, this tiny verse, it says, The Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. That Jesus was always there from the very beginning with the Father and the Spirit. And because he's sovereign, he knew what was coming. And had declared in his heart and the heart of God that he was coming to die for this lost and broken world, that he was coming to make a new creation, that evil would not win and he would make all things new. And so as we come to worship, we come to worship the Jesus who was and is and will always be the same, who loves us. I, for one, am grateful that he waited for me to come to faith. I'm grateful that he waits for others to come to faith. I'm grateful that Jesus is one who understands the world and all its complexities and all the pain in our world. 
I'm grateful that Jesus is the one who wins. I'm grateful that Jesus is the one who is coming again. I'm grateful for the courage of the persecuted church. Jesus, but actually follow him even more closely and with more passion. And I'm grateful that the Lamb waits generously. And so we're going to worship and encourage us to throw ourselves upon the Lord, even with the things that we do not always understand, for he is good and is working his purposes out. And even he's at work in the waiting. One of the songs that uh, Hermes introduced me to, uh, a song that God is in the waiting. And, and I really felt that this week, and I've listened to it over and over again, that God was saying something about those of us who are waiting for things. Sometimes we think God is not there. He is in the waiting as well. So I encourage you to stand if you'd like to as we worship together as the band leaders in praise to our God. Mm-hmm.